Ladies and gentlemen, it is November. Depending on where you are in the world, it's getting either colder or hotter. But whatever you do, do not put up Christmas decorations before December. And in the words of Public Enemies, Chuck D. Bring the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is the 150th episode of What's Good. Mm-mm-mm. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you're all doing well in the circumstances. You know, I, I, I just I realized yes, I realized last week I was like, oh shit, it's 150 next week. <laughs> you just you just keep trucking, and it's just like, oh yeah, 150. That, mean, that should mean something to somebody. Um, but yeah, man, it's good. It's good. Uh, I w- uh, well, in the, since it is November, I will say, um, if you if this is the f- if this year has been the first time, uh, you know, you've been spinning what's good uh, throughout this year, um, I do, I will let you know that uh, at the end of November there will be no uh, episodes of what's good throughout the month of December, apart from the five EPN special, which will happen around Christmas time. Um, if you haven't peeped that. You can go peep them, um, uh, go search for that bef- uh, uh, before. So it's called the Five VPN Special. I've done it a couple of times now, and uh, basically that's just me checking in with all the other shows and giving you guys a chance if you haven't listened to the other shows um, to you know get to I guess know the other people that host uh, host those shows. Um, so yeah, it's, it's nice. It's a nice crossover, cross pollination thing I like to do. Um, but yeah, there's no, there's gonna be no what's good episodes uh, in December uh, as of as at this point, um, might change, I don't know, depending on how my workload is, um, but yeah, I usually just use that month to, uh, create my end of year lists, I really enjoy doing those, uh, it's one of the highlights of my year, just listening back to everything I've been listening, all the music I've been listening to, um, and just, you know, throwing them onto a list, you know, songs, EPs, albums, I'm, I'm, I really enjoy doing it, um, so yeah, I just like to spend the whole of December doing that, instead of, uh, doing what's good, and planning, planning that out, um, so yeah, that's how it's going to be, and uh, just fair warning, since it's November, we have a few more episodes left now. So that's going to be one, two, three, four more episodes. Well, three more episodes after this one. And then I'm gone for the December. And then obviously come back uh, when uh, the new year comes around. And yeah, apart from that, a little, house- <laughs> apart from a little housekeeping. Uh, it's episode 150. And, um, you know, um, whether, whether, you know, whether you've been listening, if it's your first listen or your 150th listen... I appreciate you nevertheless, and I appreciate you coming through, um, you know, wherever you are in the world. Um, you know, shout out to you know, people from, like, Kenya and uh, oh, where else, like, just really odd places, like, fucking, I don't know, like, Kazakhstan, I think, was one that I saw one time. Uh, Mongolia, like, man, wherever you guys are, man, shout out to you guys, uh, Europe, South America, wherever, man. Um, and you know, not just this podcast, but for the rest of them as well, in such source, doing this, of course. Um, so yeah, man, I, I fully appreciate you uh, coming through. Um, you know, this is, this is one I don't, I don't really care about analytics, right? I'll do the show because I like doing it. Um, and if people want to listen, they want to listen. Um, you know, it's purely based off if you enjoy my, <laughs> if you enjoy my, I guess, uh, humor or what I care about, or you're interested in what I'm caring, what I care about, and maybe you don't know about it, whatever, I don't know. Um, and or you just like hearing me read. Either way, I don't really know why people listen, but um, <laughs> for whatever reason you do, so I fully appreciate it. So with that said, let's hop right in. Uh, we got two live film and TV and a music segment for this episode. And uh, yeah, for messages before we begin, email, Twitter, IG, Discord link, all that, all that, all that in the full show notes. Please go peep the articles for yourself and support the writers that make this show possible. And with that said, let the beat drop and let's get into the show. week where Facebook is now meta, which will be our first segment, we'll get right to that shortly, 
Uh, COP26 begins. Um, it's only been a couple of days in now, so uh, it's basically been a lot of politicians, um, you know, just saying 10-minute speeches and stuff like that. Um, and I feel like Boris Johnson has a prop bet on as to how many metaphors he can give. Um, I think yesterday he gave... He, Excuse me. He referenced the um, he referenced deforestation, which they uh, which hundred twenty I think hundred twenty <laughs> excuse me countries have uh, uh, you know made a voluntary agreement to stop deforestation by twenty thirty. Um, you know, highlight the word voluntary on that front. Um, <laughs> he he referenced it as the Great Chainsaw Massacre, and I'm just like, must you sloganize everything? Like, do you really need to just slap a tagline on everything? It pisses me off. Uh, the world passes 5 million uh, COVID-19 deaths. And lastly, Ethiopia calls a state of emergency as Tigray rebels uh, move to the capital. But we, like I said, we begin with Facebook. And, um, well, well, sorry, sorry, guys. It's not Facebook anymore. It's now Meta. Yes, yes. Facebook have renamed themselves to Meta. Well, technically not. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's similar to Google Alphabet. Google still exists, but Alphabet is kind of like the parent company. And, uh, uh, and yeah, I think Facebook is trying to, um, you know, elim- not eliminate, but like lessen the lessen the Facebook bullshit that goes around the goes around them and uses Meta as kind of like a reason uh, as kind of like a, a new offshoot so they can focus on the future um, and not be bothered by the fa- no, I'm not I'm not Facebook I'm Meta um, but you know it's not like it, it is I kind of reference this um, I kind of thought about this in terms of like uh, when uh, you know Coke changed to new Coke it's still Coke bruv <laughs> But then again, they're not trying to change. They weren't changing their names for any reason. But it's more like um, it's more like actually a good a better comparison is uh the tobacco industry. So um, I remember in a uh, the only reason I know this is because of F one. But um, if you look on Ferrari cars, um, Ferrari F one cars, um, they have a sponsor called Mission Win Winnow or Win Now, whatever it's called. Um, basically, it's under you know Marlboro Philip Morris, uh, you know International, um. Because they can't, uh, you know, cigarette companies can't outright advertise their shit anymore on uh, F1 cars as for as Marlboro used to on a uh, you know 2000s era uh, F1 F, uh, Ferrari F1 cars. Um, so they had to switch up to Mission Winnow or Win Now, and yeah, it's you know it's supposed to be you know the the I don't know philanthropic side of to the tobacco industry, I don't know, but, uh, you know, it's still technically for it, Morris, but it's a loophole, a loophole is a loophole, so that's how I see this, anyway, so let's get into this uh, particular article here, uh, this is called, uh, Facebook is now meta, but not quite a metamorphosis, um, this is by Rebecca Hailwell, Hailwell, via Recode by Vox, and uh, yeah, let's jump right in. Uh, Facebook Inc. is now Meta Platforms Inc., Meta for short, an event on Tuesday. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg announced that the company is rebranding itself and focusing on building the quote-unquote metaverse, a simulation in which people interact as avatars in real time. This new name signifies that Facebook does not want to just build this new digital environment, it wants to be the face of it too. Quote, from now on we're going to be the metaverse, not Facebook first. Uh, Zuckerberg said at Facebook Connect, the company's virtual and augmented reality developer conference. Quote, continuing on with the quote, as our new brands start showing up uh, in our products, uh, I hope that people come to know the meta brand and the future that we stand for. So there you go, We're, we're going to be metaverse first, not Facebook first. But yet, Facebook is the thing that's you know, you know, handily uh, uh, having a big hand in destroying the world. But you know, whatever. Metaverse, guys. Metaverse. Oh, shiny new thing. Shiny new thing. Anyway, uh, we don't know the full backstory behind Net- Meta's new branding, which includes a logo that looks like a twisty infinity signed, uh, qu- twisted infinity sign. Sorry. Uh, when announcing the new name, Zuckerberg explained that he liked Meta because it's Greek word that quote symbolizes there's always more to build unquote. Perhaps coincidentally, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Uh, the philanthropy Zuckerberg founded uh, with his wife Priscilla Chan uh, acquired a startup called Meta that uses AI to aggregate scientific research. Through the project's website, it says it's a separate entity from Facebook. Meta's uh, most obvious connotation, of course, is with the Metaverse itself. 
aside from Zuckerberg, uh, Zuckerberg's big ga- uh, big name announcement. Uh, this year's Connect conference focused on explaining how the metaverse and technology uh, that powers it will actually work. Through a series of colourful and highly animated demonstrations, a presentation focused on how people might play games, go to work, exercise, and even study in virtual three-dimensional environment whenever it goes live. Zuckerberg also highlighted his company's efforts to build new products for the metaverse, including new virtual and augmented reality hardware, highly realistic digital avatars, and uh, new video game experiences. Uh, Yeah, and new video game experiences. And adopting the new name, the CEO explained, is meant to represent the importance of uh, of the new metaverse business, uh, which will operate separately from Facebook social media, uh, social media app, uh, social media apps. Uh, Facebook's new focus on the metaverse comes seven years after the company purchased Oculus, which builds virtual reality headsets that allow people to play three D virtual games. Uh, Andrew Bosworth, uh, the company's uh, vice president of aug- augmented reality and virtual reality, uh, also announced on Thursday the Oculus n- name would be retired, and that its hardware and apps will now operate under the Meta brand. Uh, while these uh, VR headsets are still somewhat bulky and primary uh, among gamers, v- uh, Facebook seems to think the technology could play a key role in the bo- in the broader adoption of Horizon, a virtual rea- reality platform that allows avatars allows user avatars to interact with each other online. This, along with future innovations, possibly including augmented reality glasses that Bosworth's team has reportedly been developing, could help it could eventually help create a foundation for the metaverse. Oh gosh, guys, this sounds this sounds scary. I'm sorry. Like it's come. Remember that TikTok one I I was talked about a while back. It kind of reminds me of that. It's like yeah, so it's kind of like a a less threatening, but also just you know reading between the lines kind of threatening. Like you know even just the Ray Ban Ray Ban uh, Facebook collab that came out recently. I'm just like no, <laughs> no, not not gonna happen, Chief. I'm sorry. Uh, the company formerly known as Facebook. <laughs> it's the thing. We're still going to call it Facebook. You know what I mean? It's ain't going to change. Like it's not going to change. We're, we're going to keep calling it Facebook. Let's be real. I'm probably going to keep calling it Facebook. In, in especially in this case, I'm just going to keep saying it's Facebook, right? Because why else would I? Why would I call it better? Because I want to be correct. Who cares? Anyway. Um, what was that? Uh, as it faces the, uh, uh, the company formerly known as Facebook is pivoting to the metaverse as it changes, as it yeah faces a deluge of changes, including the potential probe from the FT, FTC, Federal Trade Commission, and the ire of lawmakers concerned about the company's plans to build a kids' version of Instagram. That always makes me laugh thinking about it because, like, why the fuck would you do that? <laughs> uh, which would be put on hold. Uh, the company is also face- facing a surge in critical media coverage fueled by thousands of internal documents leaked by the Facebook whist- whistleblower Francis Haugen. Uh, the documents uh, have revealed, uh, have have given the public a new view into Facebook's internal operations and revealed the company's dismal record when it comes to com- combating hate speech, uh, political polarization, uh, and human trafficking, among other problems. Uh, but as Rico's Shirin Gafari explained last week, Facebook's new approach shows that the company doesn't think current challenges should deter its broader ambitions. In fact, Zuckerberg said as much in the conference over in Iraq. Still. The company seems uh, seemed to indicate it had learned lessons from its experience running the world's largest media platform. Okay, I have to stop right there because you haven't because they're still existing. They're still there. You haven't changed anything yet. Like you haven't no. Like you haven't learned you haven't learned lessons because you haven't applied those le- those learned lessons. You may have learned lessons, but we're still waiting on the, the application. Uh, you know, and the reaction to said lessons learned. So. You know, what? Anyway, continuing on. Uh, while developing the metaverse over the past few years, Facebook leaders insisted that the company would be a lot more cautious. Researchers will be consulted from the beginning and privacy interoperability? Inter, 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 what the fuck? That's a word and a half. Interoperability. Wow, that's a long word. What does that mean? The ability of computer systems and software to exchange and make use of information. Right, okay, interesting. That's a great word. Um, And openness will be built into Facebook's metaverse products uh, from the outset. They said, quote, you want to know that you want to know that when you buy some buy something or create something that your items will be useful in a lot of contexts and you're not going to be locked down locked into one world or platform, as Zuckerberg said. It's a future that is beyond any one company that will be made by all of us, unquote. 
but Facebook's new name suggests that the metaverse will primarily be made by Facebook and might even be synonymous uh, with the company. After all, much of the conference focused on how Facebook is getting the technology needed for the metaverse ready for this uh, virtual reality system even uh, before the virt- this virtual reality system even launches. Whenever that happens, it won't be surprising when people think that the metaverse and meta are the exact same thing. Okay, that's the entire article. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it kind of just comes back to, you know, one main thing for me. And that is, like, when I think about... Even when I think about, you know, stuff like Star Trek, right? For example, right? You can you can think up, you know, plenty of uh, near-future or far-future shows, right? Um, but I'm just going to say Star Trek just for, you know, everyone knows what Star Trek is, right? Um I see a lot of that stuff, and, you know, you can't help but put... Well, I can't help anyone, anyway, I don't know about you. Uh, maybe you can separate yourself from the real world, but, like, I, I watch that now, <coughs> and I just see something, I'm just like, oh, that's cool, but what's your, what's the data like there? Did, is there any data breach to that? Because, <laughs> you know, the way the Star Trek go about it is that, like, the technology they have is very, like, I guess, uh, governmental, right? But this is a private company, right? And it's driven by capitalism, so... You know, you don't see Star Trek in that fashion. You see it as very, you know, just not not capitalist, right? You see it as like an independent, I don't know, governmental body, that, um, you know, space exploration. I forgot what the, you know, overall body is called, whatever. Don't get me. I don't watch Star Trek that hard. I just know what it is, right? You watch it and you're just like, okay, that yeah, yeah, yeah that seems fine, right? Um, but yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that, but Facebook, you know? just every time your face gets scanned it's it's logged and everything like that and ah, man it's it's not it's not great it doesn't sound great guys it just doesn't sound great so you know whatever whatever facebook wants to do on that front you know because call yourselves matter call yourselves whatever you want i'm gonna still see you as facebook and i'm gonna continue to say to people get the fuck off facebook now and save yourself a bit of sanity just save yourself a bit of sanity you can get your news elsewhere guys all right there's plenty of other places just just hit up those places okay and you know and it's good to have multiple places to look up okay just give it a go just hop off facebook for a week trust me it'll feel weird in the the first couple of days and then you'll get used to it and then you probably won't even need it anymore trust me you might miss a few friends birthdays that's all that's all i've missed really but apart from that it's all bliss over here so get off facebook before before they really and truly fuck up something that, I don't know, isn't whole countries. So move on, keeping on with life. Um, I usually leave stuff like this to the last um, segment, but I want to keep it a slow rise up. You know what I mean? Just a, just more fun stuff on the other side. Um, so this is uh, an article I found, a little opinion piece uh, by some Mr. Uh, by Mr. Michael Boyle, um, who's a retired lecturer and a former advisor to Liverpool's uh, Liverpool's uh, Maritime Museum. Um, the article is simply called I'm fourth gen- I'm a fourth generation black British man yet I'm still made to feel I don't belong and that just fascinates me just let's just unpack the fact that he's fourth generation black British just think about that for a minute so let's let's do the math right so you're, you're telling me that there was black people before Windrush <gasps> I know great I know guys wild concept I know wild concept. But yes, so I'm um, <clears throat> I'm second generation, right? So let's just think about that. 25. My pops born in uh, London, um, and his mother uh, was uh, from Montserrat, right? So he's second generation. He's first generation Black British, and I am second, right? And this guy's fourth. And it literally says, um, be- just below, my great grandparents came here in the 1800s. So that's just. Just think about that, man. Just think about that and how, you know, if you've ever been taught black history, um, how, you know, not everything not everything starts a Windrush, guys. You may think it does, but there's always something deeper. Always, always something deeper. <clears throat> so let's get into this article. In September 2017, 
I had just landed at Manchester Airport after a visit to New York. At passport control, I was asked, where was I born? I replied, Liverpool, and joked, doesn't my accent give me away? Uh, to which the officer replied aggressively, there's no guarantee you were born here. <laughs> you were born there. Um, I am a 73-year-old retired university lecturer, born and raised in Liverpool. But I am black, you see, so my nationality always seems to be under question. In fact, not only am I black British, but so were my parents, my grandparents and my great-grandparents. I represent the fourth generation of my family, who've lived here since the 1800s, yet still have to face passport officers who doubt my nationality. Black people's presence in Britain is often seen as a fairly recent phenomenon. This historical amnesia has resulted in marginalising the contribution black citizens have made uh, to Britain's social and economic landscape. Yes, people can be forgiven for thinking that the black presence in Britain began with the docking of the Empire Windrush in June 1948, bringing British Caribbean citizens to the UK. But the passengers who disembarked were not Britain's first black settlers. Our history can be traced back to the Roman occupation, which witnessed black soldiers as part of the Roman army, and even an African-born emperor, Septimius uh, Severus. Okay, that's that's a name to look up later. Um, During Black History Month, I am reminded to reflect on my own family history. My maternal grandfather, James Barrencloth Boyce, uh, was from Sierra Leone, and he was educated in Edinburgh. Uh, He then went on to settle in Liverpool and eventually qualified as a ship's captain. But the white crews would not take orders from a black captain. So throughout his career at sea, he sailed as first mate. In Liverpool, he met and married my maternal grandmother, Mary Margaret Goodwin, who was white and whose family had settled in Liverpool from Ireland. On my father's side of the family, the sea is again the link. My father's father, Arnold Augustus Boyle, was born in Barbados and came to Liverpool as a ship's cook in the Merchant Navy before the First World War. He met and married my grandmother, Margaret Ann Dearden, who was white and who was uh, whose family also come to Liverpool from Ireland. I was lucky to, enough to have been able to discuss discuss with both sets of grandparents what life was like for mixed race couples in the nineteenth in nineteenth century Britain. Both my grandparents and my own parents, who met in the nineteen thirties, faced one ugly, ever present reality. They all spoke graphically of the degree of racial prejudice shown to them throughout their lives as mixed race couples. I remember my mother's uh, mother's mother recalling how some of the uh, her neighbours organised a petition to quote. Get the black woman out of Tagus Street, unquote, in Liverpool's Toxteth area. At the time, the area was predominantly white, and my grandmother was the only black woman living in the street. She talked about how she was alone in the house while many, uh, while my grandfather, Chief Petty Officer Edward Rigby, was away in the Royal Navy fighting at the Battle of J- uh, Jutland in 1916. On, a ca- on another occasion, she recalled how a Catholic priest at a parish church tried to have her removed from the women's confraternity because she was black. Like his father before him, my father, Joseph Boyle, was a merchant seaman. Uh, he once recalled in how, how in 1966, after the National Seamen's Strike, uh, he visited the Cunard Shipping Company's office in Liverpool seeking employment only to be told that they did not employ black fellows. The company's explanation was, quote, they have to avoid upsetting their American passengers on board their ships, unquote. The fact that he worked in the engine room where no passengers would ever see him made no difference. As I stood at the airport, my nationality being questioned, I thought of these generations, each one facing race discrimination, with no end in sight, no matter how settled black people are in this country. And my own daughter, the fifth generation, faced a racist onslaught on social media after she appeared on TV program last year. The question therefore remains, how do we combat and overcome racial bigotry and intolerance? Many people believe it will naturally die out as people get used to multicultural Britain. Black people are no longer seen as outsiders and our visible difference is no longer perceived as a threat. The experience of my family says otherwise. Alas, I would argue that not only until society commits to a willingness to confront the history of Britain's so-called glorious past and challenge the myth of white superiority, can we ever hope to achieve an equal and fair society? Our approach should therefore be to revisit the past, and recognise that uh, that learning the true nature of Britain's history can be the instrument for social change. Meanwhile, a fourth-generation black man in his 70s living in the UK can still, sadly, 
lack any sense of belonging. <clears throat> I can only hope that two, my two children will witness a groundbreaking social change that sees Britain become a more equal society. For if we fail in our quest for racial justice, the question will be how many more generations will have to suffer from the obscenity that is racism. <clears throat> So that's the, that's the start and finish of it. Um, I have a lot of thoughts to it. Um, first of all, just how fascinating it is that um, you know the, 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 there's 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 a there's somebody that I I, I really do envy um, being able to you know just what's the word just just pick my uh pick my elders brains on you know their their own lives and their own you know uh feelings towards things i never actually got that opportunity i was just a little bit too i was i was just too young and too just like i don't know not even invested you know to learn that kind of stuff um i was just never invested in it um yeah, but like I had a had a had a great aunt, and uh, you know, re- visited my great aunt um, and uh, my uh, grandmother, who I just mentioned before. Um, you know, I had them, and yeah, you know, I never really, I never asked them anything about it. You know, they both died before I was about before I was twelve, eleven. Um, so before I even you know came of age, so to speak. So I really do envy. Um, boil on this fat on this front of just being able to you know uh, understand where his grandparents were and you know and what they thought how out their lives even you know got to this point. Um, it's it's so fascinating to have that knowledge, that first hand knowledge, um, and especially as someone who's like fourth generation. That's just I that's un- un- I can't fathom that. I really can't. I, I generally can't fathom it. Um, you know, I just, I just, I'm just getting to the point where I'm asking my pops, like, on, on certain things, you know what I mean, um, it's, 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 uh, you, you, it's hard to, it's hard to just, like, throw that stuff out, uh, uh, you know, throw that stuff in the, in the mix and just go ask him, hey, dad, what do you, how, how many times have you been arrested, you know what I mean, just, obviously not stuff like that, but, <laughs> just, but just, like, experiences, you know, and just, like, uh, asking him about experiences, Usually, um, it comes about, I think, when we're in certain locations, <clears throat> um, especially in London. I feel like um, he is much more, um, there's much more reason uh, for him, for either me to ask or for him to, you know, just elucidate on like, uh, oh yeah, I went to a show here, like, um, you know, or this place, or you know, oh, oh, this happened to me uh, over there, rec- uh, like, you know, years ago. Um uh, yeah, it was, it's just, yeah, it's just, a uh, you know, stuff like that, and that, that shit is priceless, guys, like, re- I don't, I don't think, I, I think that's, I think that's something that need that needs to be, um, I think that's something that needs to be, um, highlighted a lot, I think, um, I feel like it's easy for, uh, not easy, uh, no, no, I wouldn't say easy, but, <sighs> I mean, yeah, in some ways it is easier, actually, um, for, you know, um, for, for white, uh, British people, I'll just stick it there, um, and zoom in that fashion, scope it like that, for white British people to learn about their history, um, I think it's, you know, really, really enjoying that, uh, uh, I think there's a, I think there's a, there's an ease to that, right, now, you can get case by case, um, on that front, um, I remember, I had a friend, I had a friend, a really good friend recently, uh, not recently, but a few years ago, that um, basically talked about his dad for like to me in person for like the first time. I was just like, I've I've never actually asked, but I didn't. I generally didn't think he had a dad. You know, what I mean, it's one of those things where like I knew his, I know his mother, I know of his mother, right? And you know, sh- and you know, we, I've I've you know, I've kicked it with, I've chat chatted to her before. You know, what I mean, I we're on terms on that front, right? Um, but I've never ever seen his dad, I've never heard, until, and until then, until that moment where he told me about it, and it was really unprovoked as well, so it must have been a recent revelation for him, but it was just like, I was just, I was just like, shit bro, I generally didn't realise you even had a dad, you know what I mean, so, um, you know, there's there's cases like that, that, you know, um, I think we can, 
uh, some of us can relate to, but I think in the overall sense, it's very easy um, for, uh, for 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 white people to understand, you know, just broad history about where they come from and stuff like that. I think it's hard on that front for um, you know black uh, British people to understand to understand or just to glean anything from that. I wish I was really in tune when I was like ten. I wish I, I wish I was. I wish I asked those questions. Um, I, I'd have so many questions if if they were alive now. Honestly, so many questions. Um, and constant. I, I, honestly, if they were still alive, I'd probably like get them on the show like regularly, just to, like talk to them about certain things. I really would. I would. I would encourage that. I would. I would genuinely want to do that. Um, but um, it is what it is right now. But anyway, enough about me. But the overall point I wanted to make is just like I. It, I think understanding history like i've said this before you know i i think understanding history from a broad sense um and getting more specific as time goes by really makes a person um and i can attest to that uh and if we start that from you know a youth age then geez imagine where imagine where we could be like if we did that to everybody if we did that for all everyone you know not just to, not just teaching about Michael Boyle's, like you know, <laughs> nearly f- basically like five generations of being black British in his family, but like you know, just overall, like you know, just just understanding that and understanding certain names that come across, um, that come across the wire a lot, um, but then getting deeper into that, and you know, then you uncover new names, and it's not just, you know, it's not it's not just um. It's not just dark as hell, right? It's not. It's not just people like that, right? It's just, it's just you get deeper into that, and you figure out, oh shit, there's people before Windrush, there's black people before Windrush. Let me think about those. Let's think about the Sri Lankans that were at the that were in the First World War. You know, let's think about that. You know what I mean? I think it's Sri Lanka in any way. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah, you know, it's just a. Le- I think there's a lesson here about history that can be understood, and obviously, I've gotten past the point of um. Uh, I've completely neglected the fact that the whole story was hit about him not being respected in the general public, um, in the general consensus, um, and you know, I think I've I think I've shied away from that because it's just a you know very harrowing to think about to be fully honest. The fact that he has so much root in in this country and it's still you know, that's just disheartening to think about. I've got to be honest with you, it's so disheartening. Um, but that's kind of how racism works, I guess. You know, and uh, something that is not just um, a British thing. It's a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a worldwide thing in a lot of ways. Caste systems, stuff like that. Um, it's not, it's, it's a, it's a pandemic in in that kind of fashion. It's a social pandemic, I guess. Um, so, um, you know, I don't, I don't think the utopia that you know, I'm not saying he referenced it as utopia, but I'm just gonna blankly say that um, a utopia he was, you know, talking about near the end with his, with his, uh, with his children. I don't think will happen, but I know what will get it get it real real good start on that is education again. So um, let's continue on from that. So we continue with our music segment, and uh, this is all about uh, poet uh, Gil Scott Heron, um, who recently has been indu- uh, one of the one of the several people inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think this year has included like uh, you know Tina Turner, Jay Z, um, so you know a very good list. Um, go look up if you want. But I just wanted to talk about Gil Scott Heron um, specifically. I found this article by uh, David Dennis Jr. via the Undefeated, called "A Poet and a Protest of Gil Scott Heron." Uh, captured his time and hours, and it just it just fascinates me. Um, uh, I've I've been recently, you know, thinking about uh, you know how how people before hip hop were hip hop, but it was just before you know before the term even was coined. And I just I just love that stretch. I love that reach, reaching out um, to you know connect these dots. Um, you know historically between people like uh, Gil Scott Heron and a Common, for example. You know it's just I love I love making that link. It's it's so fascinating. So let's get into this article. This is great. This summer, uh, billionaire Richard Branson took a plane to the edge of the Earth's atmosphere, and Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, followed him into space a few days later. 
But the world in throes of a pandemic and the gap between the wealthy and the rest of us growing wider, it was fitting that the phrase, Whitey on the Moon, was trending on social media. Gil Scott Heron, who will be inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on Sunday, so Sunday's just passed, with the Early Influence Award, wrote the poem Whitey on the Moon, which he performed on his breakout album Pieces of a Man. On the night of the moon landing in 1969, the song featured lines such as, I can't pay no Dr. Bill, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years, ten years from now, I'll be paying still, while Whitey's on the moon. Unquote. The poem captured the precise political moment of the time while also speaking directly to the inequality, inequality plaguing the country in 2021. The continued relevance of Whitey on the Moon underscores the continued relevance of his music, uh, music message and social commentary. And his Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction is an acknowledgement that one man influenced social justice movements five decades apart while also helping birth one of the most popular music genres in the world, hip-hop. Scott Heron's father, Gil Heron, was a Jamaican soccer player who had later become uh, the first member of the Scottish Celtic team. Um, his mother, Bobby Scott, was an opera singer. He grew up admiring Fannie Lou Hamer for her truth-telling and fearlessness and poet Langston Hughes for his literary genius and wit. Quote, He was a renaissance man, Scott Heron once said of Hughes. He wrote songs, he wrote poetry, he wrote columns, he wrote essays. And as a writer myself, I knew that you couldn't use just one form and get every idea across, unquote. Scott Heron's love of Hughes led him to the writer's alma mater. Is that how you say it in Mayan accent? Alma mater? Alma mater? Uh, Lincoln University, a historically black school in Pennsylvania. Musicians' time at Lincoln in the late 60s overlapped with some of the most volatile moments in black American history. The Vietnam War, the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and the emergence of the Black Panther Party. During, his ti- during this time, Scott Heron was writing a novel, The Vulture, and formulating what would be pieces of a man. And he was protesting. Carl Cornwell, a legendary jazz musician who met Scott Heron while studying, also studying at Lincoln, recalls a protest on campus over lack of emergency medical care. A drummer in Cro- uh, Cornwell's ensemble had an asthma attack and died because there wasn't a doctor on campus and the nurse was unreasonable. Quote, Gill was one of the more outspoken brothers on the campus, and was pushed to the forefront of that movement, Cornwell recalled. We ended up shutting down the school. When we came back from winter break, there was an ambulance in front of the infirmary. Unquote. Pieces of a Man was released in 1971, after a push from producer Bob Thie... I think it's Steele, <coughs> uh, to evolve Scott Heron's spoken word efforts into more of a jazz and blues blend, with the musician's friend, pianist Brian Jackson, as his right-hand man. Quote, we both understood... There were enough songs about partying and getting down, Jackson said. We just felt that if we can actually write any type of music that we felt was uh, that we felt was needed, we felt that consciousness raising and adopting the tradition of the uh, West African griot. Uh, I think it's griot. I think, I think that's what you say. I, I, I don't know why I say griot like it's French. Uh, where we were, uh, where we wanted to go. Unquote. Pieces of a man is a full of anguish and hope. Masterpiece in which Scott Heron. Uh, establishes himself as one of the premier musical voices of the Black Power movement. It was a role he'd continue to embrace in his subsequent work, No Knock, from his second album. Free Will is a scathing indictment of the police and policies that led to the execution of Black Panther leader Fred Hampton, 1969. Winter in America, 1974. Uh, did I say 60 before? I don't know. Um... It talks about the destru- destruction of democracy. Johannesburg in 75 was about breaking down the injustice of apartheid. And We Almost Lost Detroit in 1977 was about nuclear proliferation and who suffers the most. Scott Heron maintained his activist leanings even as his popularity grew. He became the first artist signed by Clive Davis to Arista Records. He was the musical guest for the seventh episode of Saturday Night Live, thanks to the insistence of host Richard Pryor, who pushed for Scott Heron when producers were hesitant. Quote, he issued an ultimatum, if I don't get the guest I want, I'm not doing the show, remember Jackson. Big up Richard Pryor on that one. Uh, but it was 1971's The Revolution Will Not Be Televised that became his most lasting legacy. The song inspired by the opening lines to The Last Poets When the Revolution Comes became a rallying cry spanning decades. Scott Heron with The Last Poets, uh, along with The Last Poets, are often credited with the song, uh, with being the first rappers for their spoken word songs. Scott Heron, though, bristled at the notion, quote, he never set out to start a new genre, his daughter Gia said. We came from the oral tradition and folks rapping. He'd say, how am I being credited as the inventor of something that has been in existence for over a millennia? Unquote. 
Uh, well, continue with that quote. He never wanted to take credit as godfather of rap, said his son, Rumel Rackley, uh, who is the administrator of Scott Heron's estate, a job that includes, among other things, career samples and grinding music licenses. Uh, I think that was just him being humble. He always talked about things cre- he created as we, unquote. But rappers themselves are quick to credit Scott Heron. Uh, another quote, he was one of the forefathers of rap, said Common, uh, who was introduced uh, to the revolution not be televised as a kid and was blown away by how it sounded so rebel. His poetic approach was uh, guiding a birth of rap in certain ways and the mentality of what hip-hop would begin uh, yeah, begin to be as a revolutionary art form, unquote. While Scott Heron helped introduce the world to hip-hop, hip-hop would later introduce younger uh, generations to Scott Heron. Like many people my age, I was introduced to his music through rap. Kanye West, who performed the tribute set at the memorial service for Scott Heron in 2011, sampled Scott Heron's Home is Where the Hatred Is on 2005's late registration for the song My Way Home with Common. Uh, Quote, that's one of the songs I love from Gil Scott anyway, uh, Common said, so I was really happy to do that and inspired to do that, unquote. The track almost sounds almost like a duet between Common and Scott Heron, featuring the latter's booming, sometimes haunting lines about the tortures of addiction and drug use. And while drugs would uh, go would later go on to wreak havoc on Scott Heron's life, he wrote and performed the song so passionately that it's become accepted that he that the home is uh, about his own demons. Quote Remember he was only around nineteen when he wrote Home is Where the Hatred is, said Jackson. The song, along with the bottle, is an example of a song where he's going through a lot of description about addiction that he wasn't experiencing. It just shows his ability to get into the spirits of the people and report back what he sees. That's his greatest contribution. A lot of the stuff he wrote didn't come from personal experience, but it was so prophetic, said author and journalist Lema Rackley, Rumal Rackley's mother, uh, that allows so much of his work to be timeless, unquote. It's that timelessness that has made Scott Heron's music so influential, especially in hip-hop. He f- he's frequently sampled, and not just by West. Scott Heron's music ha- and voice has, uh, have appeared in songs by Mo's Def, Common, Blackstar, Kendrick Lamar, and others. Quote, uh, he just made pretty dope records, said producer Ichiban Don, uh, who sampled Peace Go With You Brother for Lamar's Poe Man's Dreams, His Vice, in 2011. Most people uh, who listen to Gil Scott Heron are educated in black culture. The people who are tapped into hip-hop will always celebrate him and his music, unquote. When Gia Scott Heron heard her father's voice performing the intro to Do You See on Warren G's 1994 uh, Regulate G-Funk era, it made her instantly call it her middle school. The song which samples Scott Heron's bicentennial blues spoken word performance also helped her feel more connected to her father who was struggling with a drug addiction that had him in and out of jail and damaged his health for most of his adult life, making him largely unavailable until they rekindled their relationship months before his death. But, rev- but the revolution will not will not be televised, will remain the most enduring influential offering. The message that revolutionary action takes place in the mind before it moves forward has persisted despite America's penchant for neutering, commercialising and sanitising messages of black resistance. Quote, We noticed that Madison Avenue picked up the message, said Jackson, who noted that uh, as America was trying to commodify the musical resistance, he and Scott Heron were being followed by the FBI, it was painful to watch the message appear on commercials that in itself is a televised revolution. That's the, excuse me, that's the antithesis of what we were saying. I'm so glad that so many uh, in Black Lives Matter took up uh, the revolution not be televised as their anthem, said Le Miracle. To have his voice out there um, inspiring his generation of activists is powerful. I hope uh, they study him more and deeply, uh, more deeply and not just go on the surface, unquote. Which brings us back to Whitey on the Moon. In August 2020, in the midst of American Reckoning, HBO's hit Lovecraft Country ended its second episode titled Whitey's on the Moon by playing Scott Heron's spoken word piece. The scene defies time and the laws of nature as one of the main characters reaches back to an ancestor for strength to overcome the shackles of the present. It's a perfect analogy for Scott Heron's legacy. His music stretched across decades, empowering those he lived with and provided a beacon for those who came after. Timeless is an easy word, but maybe it doesn't do his legacy justice. It's time travelling, continuum shattering, ever-present, and here for us whenever we need it. And that's a great way to finish, I think. That's a, that's a perfect way of finishing that, because, you know, it, 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 there are people like that, um, that and there aren't, well, actually, there, I'll say, there aren't many people like that. 
where you can listen to them and it just sounds so fresh, you know? Maybe not musically, right? Musically, probably, you know, but from what I've heard of Gil Scott Heron, which is, you know, not as much as I want to, um, is, you know, supremely 70s, right? <laughs> but, layman, just, just, if you do a lyrical read of it, if you just bring up them lyrics and just read it, man, it's just, just a lot just comes up as, you know, in one of the words used prophetic. It genuinely is. Um... And I love that. I, I love that ability. It's a rare ability. And, uh, you know, Scott Heron clearly had that uh, in spades. Um, so, you know, shout out to Skill Scott Heron um, in general. Um, I feel I feel like I'm going to... There's, there's, a, there's a point so close um, where I'm just going to, like, give Scott Heron just, like, total, like, my full attention and just, like, listen to, you know, just a day of, like, full album listening. I feel like I'm gonna do that someday. I just I don't know. I just feel it because uh, he's been he's been on the mind. He's been on my mind a, a few times this year. You know, I saw that why he's on the moon trending. I saw that and I listened to the I listened to him perform it. And I was just like, damn, <laughs> freaking called it. Like it's great. Um, so yeah, prophetic and you know I think is the is is the word I'd like to use to describe him. Um, but yeah, timeless is a is a great one as well. So I finished up the episode with uh, Film and TV and this is all about The Wire and how it's the GOAT TV show of the 21st century. Um, as voted by uh, an international panel uh, uh, via BBC Culture, and uh, this is kind of just the uh, just the overall, I guess, a uh, write-up. Um, this is by Eric Deggins, uh, who is uh, NPR's TV writer, um, but via BBC Culture, uh, basically called "Why the Wire is the Greatest TV Series of the 21st Century," and uh, I fully agree with that. It's funny; I've only watched that show once throughout. Right, I've seen episodes here and there, you know. Um, intermittently, uh, you know, just for research purposes, or just you know, I wanted to see that one clip of something. Um, but I remember watching it, like binge watching it, um, you know, years ago for the first time. And a lot of the episodes, were well, a lot of it was like you know, for the first time. I've seen you know, gifs and that before. Um, but right, <laughs> that shit just sticks on. My, it's just it's been stuck in my mind for. Oh, it just lives it. It just lives in my head rent-free. It really does. It's crazy. Um, and it's, you know, part of a long, uh, a amazing, you know, just stretch of work by David Simon, um, who co-created this uh, show. Um, he's recently done, like, really good stuff, like um, uh, The Deuce, uh, which is amazing. Uh, it's, like, a, like, three, I think it's three seasons or four seasons of just, like, uh, chronicling uh, New York 80s, I think it's 80s, like, porn era. Uh, and how they were just like, uh, you know, uh, just hookers on, you know, Times Square and shit like that. It's just so, the storytelling is so vivid and it's just, you're right there, man. It just plants you right there. The visual storytelling is perfect. Um, Show Me a Hero was a really good uh, miniseries that he did. Um, I've started, I I watched the first episode of Trem, or Treme, I forgot what it's called, um, about the uh, aftermath of New Orleans uh, Hurricane Katrina. Um, and I want to, I want to get into it. Um, I just haven't made the time to get into it. Um, but I, I, I watched the first episode and I was just like, oh, it's literally the wire, but with the Hurricane Katrina. It's just, oh, it, the amount of stories it follows in the space of in, like 90 minutes in the first episode anyway. But, uh, I guess the rest of the episodes are an hour, but it's just, oh, I love it. I just fucking love it. It's just the viewpoints for me. It's the viewpoints that they come across. Um, especially in the wire, where like every season's based on something different. So like, uh, you know, uh, first first season's like you know, um, police and basically more about the police than anything. But obviously, has the gang stuff there as well. Um, and then second season's like the shipyard and how they're doing things, and then politics, and then school children get into it. Oh, just, oh, it's, it's just such a, a, a easy progression. It's so and it's logical as well. It's great. I love it. Anyway, so let's get into this. Uh, what what um. Uh, what Degan says about the show. Uh, One of the most significant scenes in The Wire is its first. 
Detective Jimmy McNulty, played by British actor Dominic West, is sitting on a stoop in a rundown part of Baltimore, quizzing a young black man about a local kid who has been murdered. The pair are looking over at the body of the boy, whose nickname was Snot Boogie. Uh, he had a history of playing in a neighbourhood dice game until there was lots of money on the ground, grabbing it and trying to run. Normally, the young man tells McNulty other players would just catch him and beat his ass, but somebody, we don't see who, finally had enough time, uh, enough this time and shot him. Uh, quote, if Snot Boogie always stole the money, why do you think, why do you let him play, McNulty asks. Got to, the kid replies. This is American man. He drops, he drops the line as if it answers everything, and it does. Appearing on HBO from 2002 to 2008, The Wire stands out as such an original and outstanding series because it is almost an anti-cop show. Where the conventional US police dramas focus on courageous individuals fighting a sometimes dysfunctional system, much of The Wire is about those systems and just how badly their corruption, inertia and injustice are failing the American people. Small wonder then. The 2,206 international critics who voted in BBC Culture's poll selected The Wire as the greatest TV series of the 21st century so far. Um, it was a clear winner. Nearly half of all critics put the show in their top 10, and almost a quarter of those ranked it in the first place, citing its depiction of power, race, class, and American life. Quote, I'm glad the show has a shelf life, says creator David Simon of The Win. Uh, we weren't interested in whether the characters were good or bad. Just stop there. I fucking love that. I I really, I I just love that so so much. Just that little bit. The amount of times I watch a film or a TV series, and the and and it's just perceived that a person's good, you know, or even perceived that a person is bad, you know. Either way, when when they just put them in that box, it just. It, it, it just, it, it, you, you don't notice it until you really think about it. But next time you watch something, right, just, just think about it. Just, just think about, like, what are they perceived to be and how, and how hard do they bend over backwards, do the writers bend over backwards or the showrunners bend over backwards to make this person a good person? You know, I watched, I remember, a, a great example, right, I watched The Flash, right, I watched The Flash, um, you know, back when it was a thing, and um, the TV show via CW, right? Um, it was a channel like Sky One over it or something, and I remember really enjoying it. I, I was really liking it, right? It was, it was you couldn't get me off it. I, I was loving it, right? Um, I preferred it over Arrow, actually. I thought Arrow was getting dead after the first. I thought Arrow was dead after the first season. I watched the second season. I was just like, oh right, so okay, right, it's crap then. So. <laughs> And then I watched The Flash and I was like, damn, this is keeping me on, man. This is keeping me on. And then and then Barry goes ahead and just, every time something bad happens, he just changes time. It's just like, bro, that's such a cop-out. And you, honestly, you're a dick for that. Like, and obviously, only he knows what he's done, right? I guess Harrison Wells, in a lot of ways, knows as well, most of the time. But um, it just it just pisses me off. It just pisses me off how hard they're trying to, like... I don't know, they're trying to like, oh, this is a good guy. No, bro, he's turning back time just because he's a fucking pussy. Like, bro, deal with it. You got your girl killed or something like that, you know what I mean? Whatever happened, I forget. But he's just constantly changed time. I'm just like, bro, stop copping out. That's probably not the best example, but you know what I mean. Just next, I think Black Panther is a great example. Like, you know, the conversation between isolationism and, uh, and, uh, I forget the opposite of it, but like, you know, how, how Wakanda was like being very isolationist towards everything else, like while everything else was going on. I think I'm going to watch The Eternals on Friday. Um, that, that I think that's going to be a case study as well, I guess, in terms of like, oh, why didn't you, the, it says in the trailer, like, why didn't you guys sort this out, you know, when you could have easily done it? And they clearly get into that. Um, but yeah, you know, it's a worthy question. And, you know, they have to answer that question. Um, and Black Panther does a, well, a good job of, you know, trying to balance that, but, um, you could easily, you know, you can easily see it as, like, you know, Killmonger had an idea, probably not the best way of ex- executing, but he had an idea there. Anyway, let's continue on. Uh, continue on David Simon's quote. We weren't interested in whether characters were good or bad. The writers had in their head, uh, had in their heads the idea, if a society, if a society is going to have a law enforcement arm, what's the job of that institution? What are the police doing? 
Uh, if you write a show like that, it will have a shelf life for as long as those systems are in play, unquote. Perfect. Uh, back when it aired, an honor like this didn't seem likely. Though critics loved The Wire, it wasn't the biggest hit with viewers, earning mostly average ratings. Excuse me. Simon says they got uh, killed in view numbers for season three, in part because of the debuts of Sunday Night Football and Desperate Housewives. It was barely recognized by TV industry's most pre- prestigious ceremony, the Primetime Emmy Awards, nominated for writing awards in two different years, winning neither. But its impact on TV, featuring the kind of anti-heroes, explicit action, authentic storylines, and complex plotting that would become standard practice in the world of streaming television, has proven immeasurable in the years since it concluded. Snotboogie's story could be The Wire's mission statement. Viewers were getting a heads up that they were entering a very specific world with its own rules, patterns of speech, expectations, and dangers. However strange it might have seemed to an audience uh, weaned on Miami Vice and Hill Street Blues, though, it was also a very American operation, reflecting how the country deals with people it would rather not consider. But this show, insu- this show endu- ensured you did consider them very deeply. It perched in the country's courtyard, uh, I need to say countryside, that would be a different show, (laughs) fucking heartbeat, Uh, it perched in the courtyard of housing projects while the corner boys conducted their drug business. It showed the ingenuity of addicts trying to earn a buck by ripping copper plumbing from houses under construction. It documented the disappearance of well-paid labour jobs for America's working class. It showed all the different ways experienced Baltimore cops... Uh, can use the F word while mulling over evidence in a crime scene. The Wire revealed that systems operated everywhere. Even impoverished neighbourhoods in Baltimore have a bureaucracy and a code of conduct. Uh, They are run like company towns by the industry that dominates the local economy, the drug trade. Uh, Over the course of its five seasons, The Wire would take on Uh, would take on some of these dysfunctional uh, structures in law enforcement, politics, education, labour unions, the media, and even drug gangs. In each case, a series of sprawling storylines explored how those systems chug along, often serving the interest uh, of the powerful while chewing up average people unlucky enough to get caught in their wake. Uh, Along the way, systemic racism, inept bureaucracy, and the indifference of leaders who are supposed to care wind up strangling America's uh, urban centres. It makes sense that this story about systems would come from two types of people who know them well, an ex-cop and an ex-journalist. David Simon loosely based a while on experiences of his writing partner Ed Burns, a former police detective and schoolteacher. Simon was a former reporter who had covered the police uh, for the Baltimore Sun newspaper, written two books about his experience and seen one turn into NBC series Homicide, Life on the Street, while he worked with Burns to develop on uh, the other into the HBO miniseries The Corner. Uh, when I spoke to Simon about The Wire for Columbia, the Columbia Journal- uh, Journalism Review in 2018, he told me stories and characters from the show feel authentic because he was writing about actual situations and people he knew from his days at the Baltimore Sun. He said The Wire was about two Americas, one connected to the promise of American success and advancement, and the other completely disconnected from it. I used to say all the time, look, there are, let's say, 479 dramas about one America, for a brief five-season period, we did a drama about the other America that got left behind, unquote. The Wire was particularly adept at depicting the failure of the US government's uh, decades-long strategy to crack down the illegal drug trade known as the War on Drugs, as Detective McNulty manipulates the police department into going after a particularly efficient and ruthless crew of drug dealers in West Baltimore, eventually using the listening devi- devices that give the show its name, we see how the drug business is the only employment left for men of a certain age in that neighbourhood. Policing in the wire becomes more about racking up arrest statistics at police supervisors and politicians rather than actually solving crimes. And a war on drugs quickly becomes a war on the poor, especially black people. The idea is epitomised by a scene from the third season featuring one of my favourite characters, police major Howard Bunny Colvin, played by Robert Wisdom. Colvin is an experienced cop dismayed by how the focus on arrests and seizures of illegal drugs is creating a generation of police officers who have forgotten how to solve crimes. Colvin explains to this, uh, this to young Sergeant Ellis Carver, played by Seth Gilliam, uh, Gilliam uh, noting that Carver has no sources in the neighbourhoods he's working in to tell him what's really happening there. Instead, Carver and his compatriots act like an invading army, rolling into the area, arresting a bunch of young men and rolling out again. Quote, You call something a war and pretty soon everybody going to be acting like warriors, uh, Colvin tells Carver. 
and when you act uh when you're at war you need to you need a fucking enemy and pretty soon damn it everybody on the corner on every corner is your fucking enemy and neighborhood you're supposed to be policing that's just occupied territory unquote uh, these days, it's accepted that 50 years of punitive policing hasn't stopped police's, uh, America's illegal drug trade. Back in the mid-2000s, it was much uh, it was a much thornier concept for a TV cop show to tackle. Still, The Wire always resisted what Ky- Simon called the thin blue line narrative, where intrepid cops are depicted as the last line of defense against lawless drug dealers and addicts. By focusing its lens on the type of char- types of characters uh, mainstream television rarely showcased, the Wire also gave us a vision of black people with the kind of depth US TV scarcely offered. The list was amazing, especially for that time. Andre Royo's insightful addict police informant Reginald Bubbles' con- uh, cousins, Wood Harris's family-oriented ruthless gangster Avon Barksdale, Idris Elba as Barksdale's Lieutenant Stringer Bell, who dreamed up of using business school tactics to build a legal empire, uh, Sonia John, uh, Sonia Son, sorry, I swear it's John. It says Son here, but I swear it was John. Um, as gay police, uh, police detective Kima Greggs, she was one of my favourite characters, I love her so much, Wendell Pierce's McNulty's irascible, uh, I forget how to say that word, partner William Bunk Morland, Felicia Pearson as hitwoman character with her own name, Felicia Snoop Pearson, uh, and many and many more. Uh, bringing life to those characters uh, required serious actors, one of the most one of the wire's most important uh, important legacies is the way it exposed TV audiences to performers who would later become household names. That roster starts with Elba, who played one of the series' most iconic characters, and has since built a career ranging from Marvel movies and Suicide Squad to fil- uh, film to TV's Luther. West had met a similar success from films like 300 to the BBC's Les Miserables, and will play Prince Charles in the upcoming uh, season of Netflix's The Crown. Other big names to come from The Wire include Michael B. Jordan, Seth Gilliam, Walking Dead, Aidan Gillen, Game of Thrones, Amy Ryan, uh, Gone Baby Gone, Wendell Pierce and Jack Ryan, Lance Reddick and Jamie Hector in Bosch, Clinton for Fargo, and Reggie Cathy uh, in Fantastic Four. Uh, I swear, if Reggie Cathy's done something better than Fantastic Four, but there you go. <laughs> Simon's credits. Uh, the show uh, casting directors Alexa Fogel and Pat Moran. Uh, with finding amazing actors who weren't in uh, a lot of high-profile projects. But he has another reason for why some of the show's performers weren't as well-known back then. Quote, A lot of those names are African-American, he says. And at the time The Wire came out, African-American actors were among the most underutilized actors in Hollywood. Network TV was very unforgiving to shows uh, that had a significant number of black characters. They thought white people wouldn't watch, but HBO was not afraid of it, unquote. The actor who most embodied the wire's success and find remarkable performance to play singular roles is the late Michael K. Williams. Williams gave life to gave life to another iconic character, Omar Little, the fearsome stick-up man who robbed uh, drug dealers. Omar was also openly gay, redefining and challenging ideas of black masculinity as a character who was undeniably cool, stuck to his own moral code, and loved other men. Williams would continue to push such boundaries in, a fu- in future roles, earning an Emmy nomination for playing a closeted gay man in HBO's 1950s set horror fantasy uh, drama Lovecraft Country, second mention of this today, uh, before his death in September. But The Wire was his breakthrough, a golden opportunity for a young black man with a prominent facial scar who had prom- uh, previously f- appeared as the dancer in music videos. To be sure, The Wire had its flaws, its storylines could be tough to follow, and the plots could be slow-moving, his second season, focused on labour unions and the poor, and its final season, centred on the media, are often cited as weaker instalments. I think the season, second season, one of its best. I think I think that was one of the best, to be honest. I, get, I think five is, I think, I think consensus. I think people think that's probably the worst season. You know, quote-unquote worst, because what's a bad season in The Wire? Um, least favourable season. I mean, I'd say four. I'm, I'm, I, but that's just me. Anyway, we can we, we can spend days ages rank, ranking them. Um, <clears throat> where was I? At? Oh yeah, uh, we can so it's, it's also a pretty male-oriented series. Through several, uh, though several female characters become standout figures. Ultimately, the ultimately though, the Wire has earned its place as the greatest show of the 21st century because there is no modern TV series that has better captured. All the various ills hobbling the American experiment today, from ineffective politicians to toxic policing, vanishing labour markets, poverty-stricken neighbourhoods, and systemic racism. It presented a vision of a community so hamstrung by issues, it's unable to fully recognise its problems, much less address them, which sounds an awful lot like America today.
and that's kind of it in in overall, isn't it? Like I think that the overall point is just the fact that it just it it is another thing that's timeless. <laughs> like it's it's another thing that you can really consider timeless because it's just it really just is unflinching um, to the issues um, that are tackled there. Um, you know, there's still so much copaganda about, you know what I mean? Um, and, you know, the, I think there's a lot of anti-hero cops about, you know, I think, I, don't, I haven't seen Bosch, but that kind of gives off the vibe of, of one, like he's a cop, but he's not a cop, or I forget, if he's an agent or whatever. Um, it's probably a bad example, I should probably reference a show I've actually seen, um, but I'm sure you can think about this, right? I'm sure, you, I'm sure you've all seen a, recent, a cop show recently, um... You know, the closest I've gotten to recently is probably the Equalizer with Queen Latifah. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's that. Um, but yeah, so um, damn, the wire is so great, man. Like, it's just so I've I've only seen it once, foot from start to finish. Um, again, I, I'll say that, but it just, a lot of it just lives in my head rent free. It's so crazy how it's stuck in my head. Like, it's such a <gasps> excuse me, it's such a slow burn, but it just sticks in my head, man. It's perfect. And we shall leave it there. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Fifth Hint Podcast Network, I've been Charlie Taylor, and it's been what's good. Too much... Uh, okay, let's get ahead of myself. <laughs> Intro music has been Too Much by Vanilla. Uh, you can find this link in the full show notes. Thanks to Jawbreakers for being to use the track. You can also find their link in the full show notes. Thanks to Nappy Hire for the ability to use Charismatic. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. I'm just going to go peep uh, the holiday fall again with my mother on TV. But until the next time, thanks for 150, and take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.